Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to Petsu Vine for May 15th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have you on the show. And we've got a lot to talk about and also we're excited about our guest, Um, Coming on to the show for the first time is University of West Georgia President – I'm sorry, University of West Georgia Professor um, Daniel K. Williams. And Daniel K. Williams, not only does he teach there at West Georgia, he also writes a lot of articles um, on kind of the history of the abortion rights uh, or the pro-life movement, I guess – you know, reproductive rights at the same time to juxtapose it. Also, he talks about, you know, religion and politics written books on that as well, but he did a piece in the Atlantic this past week that was very good, so we're going to ask him about that, among other things, when he comes on the show in about 20 minutes, but until then, we've got a lot to talk about, and sadly, a topic that we have had to talk about so many times on the show, and it just keeps recurring, would be the tragic events of yesterday in Buffalo, and sadly, this morning in California, but since we know more about what happened in Buffalo, we'll start there. Um, a gunman who was 18 years old uh, went into a shopping um, a grocery store in a predominantly African-American area of Buffalo with tactical army gear, an assault rifle, um, and live-streamed really a military-style assault on the grocery store, and 13 people were shot. Ten of them tragically dead. Um, he, he had live streamed this thing, and you know, from everything that was on the live stream, and then of course um, has been learned later. It seems like it was very racially motivated. Um, he, he apparently believes in this uh, replacement theory nonsense. Um, there's so many things about this, and all of them are sad and tragic and, and distorted, and just you know, everything terrible. Um, Catherine, your thoughts on? the events in Buffalo. I'm just so heartbroken by it. And I'm so tired of um, talking about it and hearing about it. And I just, I'm just, I'm just so over it. And I, I just don't see how we're ever going to overcome these challenges of guns and racism and, how intertwined they are, and it's just it's just terrible. I, I, I happened to talk to my brother in, who lives in Brazil today, and uh, he was like, what is it with you guys and your guns? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. And I, it's just senseless violence and death for re, for completely unreasonable ideas and and 
I, I, I don't know. It's heartbreaking. Yes. Kim, you know, there's a, a gun component with this. There's a mental health component with this. There's a social media component. There's a racial component with this. Is anything going to really happen on any of those four? Well, uh, no. That, you know, what we have is another white supremacist, another mass shooting. He's wearing technical gear. He live streamed it. He, he, 13 people shot, including a security guard who was armed and tried to engage him. And we already know what's going to happen. We're going to keep having these conversations because no one is going to do anything about it. Um, if we want to even have a conversation about gun violence, as I mentioned before we went on the air, and guns are not a part of that conversation, then I don't see where there's anything to even talk about. Do y'all? Yes, you mentioned the security guard and the uh, tactical gear. He, he actually, apparently, the security guard returned fire, and it really didn't do much to phase the perpetrator nope. because he had nope. the tactical gear on. And and you wonder if this becomes replicated over and over, um, it, it, how much worse are these shootings going to be? Because if he didn't have that tactical gear I, I have no way of knowing. I'm sure somebody that does ballistics and, and you know, studies all these things could tell you, but I'm sure the number would be less than 13 people shot and 10 tragically killed. So this made it that much worse. And he says he studied past incidents to see what he wanted to do. Who's out there studying this incident and, and, and getting ideas and going to make the next rush? Because sadly – I think we all know whether we're the most conservative or liberal person on guns, we know there's going to be a next one. Catherine? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I I just don't – I feel like we're at an impasse on how to to handle this. Like we can't get rid of the guns. We can't – I don't know. It's it's very um, frustrating and sad and – um, and and all and has so much many implications in all the things that you mentioned social media um, guns everything is is part of it and it's it's very difficult to figure out how to approach it and try to change things yeah I, I just I, I can't understand why an eighteen year old person would be have that much hate and have that much hopelessness both in their life this this seems like a plausible option to spend a saturday Uh, i mean because it's it's you know both parts i mean he had that much hate that he felt he wanted to do this and then i guess he had that little you know hope for the future that this is what he did um but sadly i mean like i said we've discussed these things too many times and we'll unfortunately probably have to discuss it again, and I don't want to be remiss and not mention the tragic events because those people um, that suffered in California are also important, even though there were less of them, fortunately, but at a Presbyterian church in Laguna Woods, California, south of L.A., um, a gunman killed one and four others were critically injured this morning. So, I mean, we didn't even get a 24-hour reprieve 
from this kind of violence. I mean, it's happening, in this case, twice in a weekend. That's how bad it's gotten. Um, we're going to go ahead and, and move to the next topic, which is more political, um, but because there's going to be so much said and unfortunately not enough done um, with the tragic events in, in Buffalo and California. But um, we're going to move to the, as we had planned earlier in the week, uh, the Pennsylvania uh, governor and senator race. Um, both of those races have made a lot of news. We had planned to talk a lot about the Republican side and really almost nothing about the Democratic side. We are going to mention the Democratic side later, but let's start with the Republican side, and let's start with the U.S. Senate. Everybody had thought that this race was going to be a two-person race between um, you know, Dr. Oz and Dave, and I have just gone blank McCormick. on his name. I need to have better notes McCormick. David McCormick. McCormick, and that's kind of Dave McCormick's problem, is he was kind of the establishment candidate that probably could have even been considered the front runner, and out of nowhere comes uh, this firebrand candidate who has caught attention and is right in striking distance, right there with um, um, Dr. Oz and Dave McCormick. And, Tim, tell us more about this candidate who really has all the momentum. Well, she presses all the, the, the right buttons for the most conservative voters and for the supporters of Donald Trump, even though he, he endorsed Dr. Dr. Oz, which, which surprised me a little bit because of Dr. Oz's uh, background. But uh, she is a conservative commentator, uh, pretty much a firebrand. She has said some really, really controversial things about Muslims and Barack Obama and illegal immigration and on and on and on and on. Abortion, that's another thing. She actually has a pretty compelling personal story about that. Uh, she's uh, anti-LGBTQ, uh, but just in the last oh four or five weeks, she's gone from nine percent in the polls to nineteen percent. Wow! And uh, Dr. Oz and David McCormick, um, they reached an agreement this week to quit attacking each other. And basically to only run positive ads about themselves and negative ads about her. But uh, she's on the upswing. Uh, a, a lot of the Republican Party fears that she'll be a, a, a bad general election candidate because there's just a lot of stuff out there that she said. Um, but I, I, I got to think now she may she may get the nomination. I mean – I couldn't imagine her uh, more than doubling her uh, polling position in the last few weeks, and then all of a sudden just to stop. She had actually, according to Real Clear Politics, moved into second place, and McCormick had dropped into third, and she's only like a couple of points behind Dr. Oz, and he seems to have hit a ceiling, and there's still like nearly 20% of the vote. According to the poll, son decided, and I got to think she's going to get the lion's share of that, and I think she's going to be the Republican nominee now. Yeah, uh, Kathy Barnett um, just came right. out of nowhere. Um, I, you know, you really didn't hear anything about her because I guess 
you know, Dave McCormick was, was the establishment guy, and then Dr. Oz was uh, Donald Trump's endorsed candidate. And I think that gets into that, oh, he was on TV, that makes him important, kind of how Donald Trump yeah. functions, even though he didn't fit the, the, the MAGA world as well as Kathy Barnett. But then, let, Catherine, let's get into that MAGA world. Is she the candidate of that base? Well, I think this is this is going to be another test of that that um, Trump or, or that base, that wacky base. Whether it's you know whether they go for the candidate that Trump actually endorsed, or they're drawn to this wacky uh, you know out of the ordinary. Uh, candidate with all the crazy ideas um i think it'll be interesting to see how how that works out and how and and then also how trump responds to it whether he you know switches over if she does win the primary if she if he you know backs her up uh in the general and comes to her side or has some other or just ignores the whole thing. So uh, it's. I think it's going to be an intro. I think McCormick is probably lost now. I mean, he's out, I would imagine, with those numbers and the attention that Barnett is getting. Yeah, he actually um, served in the Trump administration, of all things. Um, so he, he's the one there. Um, it, it's real funny. It's, you've got um, Dr. Oz, who was more mainstream on some things in the past. Now, he's had his long, you know, kind of specious um, medical, you know, dealings for a while. But as far as, like, you know, early on in the pandemic, I mean, he, he was actually, you know, you know, pro-mask um, early in the vaccines was not as critical, things like that. And so some of the model world doesn't like that, and particularly – they don't like that he's from Turkey, and they don't like that he still, uh, you know, keeps his Turkish citizenship. And they are very leery of that. And then, um, you know, um, uh, Dave McCormick, he in the past has supported, um, you know, gay rights at times. I think he spoke out in, in favor of gay marriage at one point. So the MAGA crowd doesn't like that. So if they want the tried and true person that speaks their language – then Kathy Barnett's the, the candidate for him. Um, and I think on this one, Donald Trump will come around. Sometimes when somebody else wins, he kind of jumps on board. It's kind of like Alabama. Yeah. He moved off of Mo Brooks onto somebody else. I think in this case, none of these three candidates have done anything wrong to him. So it's not like he has to you know, hold a grudge. So therefore, if one of them wins, he'll just act like, oh, they were, they were my choice all along. So that won't be the problem. It'll get to the, the general, and will that nominee be the problem? Um, so I, I think that'll be the interesting thing. The primary is Tuesday. Kim, you made a prediction that she'll win. Catherine, do you want to make a prediction? Mm. Yeah, I predict that she wins. Okay, I'll make it three for three. Um, you know, it, it is very much a um, tight race, although Ohio taught us anything. Dave McCormick's kind of the Mike Dalton-like candidate, and um, he didn't fare very well 
particularly outside of uh, metro cities, and that may be the case for, um, uh, you know, McCormick in Pennsylvania, and there's probably more of the population that lives, you know, in between the Republican primary between Pittsburgh and um, Philadelphia that votes in that Republican primary. But let's yeah. – since we're on this kind of race – go ahead, Tim. I was just going to say, do you remember what James Carville said about that? He yeah, said, Alabama, you got, you've got, you've got Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and Alabama. Alabama's <laughs> going to vote Tuesday. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's quickly move over to the um, Senate race on the Democratic side. And every poll we've seen, and we've talked about it a while now, it, as good a candidate as Connor Lamy is, John Fetterman is just beating him in the polls. Poll after poll after poll. It's not even close. It's really a shame that a, that a quality candidate like both of them are running against each other. But something sadly happened on Friday, and it may or may not have much of an impact. Um, John Fetterman, it came out today that he suffered a stroke on Friday. It was due to um, uh, an irregular heartbeat that caused a blood clot that then caused a mild stroke, and the doctors are saying he'll make a full recovery. I'm sure they'll put him on blood thinners, and they'll work on the clotting and, and what have you. And, he, you know, the, the prognosis he's telling is he'll make a full recovery. I don't have access to his health records, and if I did, I'm not a doctor. So I probably couldn't make an educated guess or, you know, thoughts on what those medical records say anyway. Um, so I'll get into the politics of it. Catherine, will this news that we learned, you know, today that happened Friday impact the um, Democratic primary in any way? Um, you know, I've been thinking about this all day ever since I heard about it. And with the election so close, I think he probably loses a little, a, some votes just for not being able to be out on the trail this weekend and reminding people you know, one last time that he's running and here's why he's so great. Um, I mean, I'm just saying that, like, that's what he would have to do. Um, but I wonder if it really has, you know, a, a big impact. So I'm going to have to waffle a little bit and say I'm really not sure. Yeah, I think you make a good point about if somebody were to meet one of the two candidates and that might sway their vote, he loses that chance. Um, now, uh, so I think that was an interesting um, thought you made. Tim, your um, take on this. No, I th- I th- I'm with Catherine. I think it's a little bit too close to the election. This had happened several weeks ago and had fleshed out, you know, in the, in, in the election process. I could, you know, we, we would know by now whether it made any difference or not. And I, I just don't. I just don't think it – well, I, I heard that today he said he hopes to be out of the hospital maybe as early as tomorrow and try to get in a last little bit of campaigning. I don't know if that's talk. I, I'm, I'm not sure the doctors would be feeling the love for, for that sort of statement, but, but that that's what he's saying, and he's saying that they were able to remove the blood clot just fine. Everything's good, and he's ready to go, but – I'm with you on that because I can't look at the medical record and see what's going on. But uh, no, I don't think I, I think it's a little bit too late for it to make much difference uh, 
now, especially when there's a 30-point gap between them in the polls. Yeah. Yeah. I will say this. I saw that in the article I was reading about the, you know, what happened, uh, there was a tweet for Connor Lamb. He said, you know, me and my wife wish, wish him and his family the best in his recovery. Hate to hear about him. You know, prayers your way. I mean, as much horrible vitriol as we hear in our politics today where people are so nasty, Connor Lamb took the high road 100% of the time on this. I mean, obviously, if he didn't, um, I, I don't know that way that would get him. But given that we have seen politicians that probably would take the low road, um, some are more fringe politicians these days, um, it was just good that somebody um, remembered you can't have class when you're running against somebody. So um, kudos to him. I, I don't think that, that anybody will decide to – if they were going to vote for Fetterman, it sounds like this medical issue is just not much of one. I mean, we have a president who suffered a far worse stroke and has lived 35 years after that stroke and for his age looks in excellent health. So um, there's somebody that you know, suffered a stroke in politics and, you know, there's our, our object lesson. So I don't think anybody would switch their vote based on this medical issue and therefore with a 30-point lead – I think Fetterman wins the primary. I guess we need to make our prediction on this one real quick. Um, for your pick. Me? Yeah, I think Fetterman wins. Yes. Fetterman wins. Okay. Um, Tim? Uh, yeah, Fetterman rather handily, I believe. Yep. Now, um, one more thing related to all of this is, the, and I actually saw a 538 piece on it, where um, they talked about the incident that happened, I guess it's about 10 years ago now, where um, John Fetterman had just become mayor of and I've, uh, Bratton, I think it's the name. It's a, it's, a, it's a suburb of Pittsburgh, a little small town outside of Pittsburgh. He became a Braddock. He became the mayor, and someone was firing a gun at places, and he thought it was this guy that was jogging, and chased him with a shotgun. This guy was not the perpetrator of any in any way. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't a good scene. But actually, they found the jogger who said, I think John Fetterman's doing a good job as lieutenant governor, and I hope he gets to go to the U.S. Senate. And I thought, hmm, that doesn't seem like there's going to be a lot of there there. But let's mention this. It was a white mayor and African-American jogger um, situation, if it's Dr. Oz is the nominee, if it's Dave McCormick that's the nominee, I don't know that this really has much play. But if it is Kathy Barnett, who is African-American, could this be more of an issue in the general election campaign that it seems like it's going to be if Fetterman, of course, is the Democratic nominee? Catherine. Oh, boy. Happened 10 years ago. <laughs> No one got hurt? About ten, about 10 years ago, he just started serving as mayor. And no one got hurt? Nope. Like, it's not he didn't shoot the guy. He just, like, ran after him. Right. Right? Yes, yeah, right. It doesn't matter. I mean, I can't imagine that you could make a – I mean, I'm sure that she could try to, but it just sounds like a non-story to me. 
Yeah. Yeah, Tim, your take. Tim. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there'll be anything much to that, especially since they tracked the guy down and he said he's for him. And and plus, the uh, Fetterman side has plenty to fire back with, like, well, why did you call President Obama a Muslim? I think she would have a harder time answering that question than Fetterman would have in answering questions about incident with a jogger. That's just my take. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's going to um, th- that's gonna be something that could be more of an angle if it is Bardet. We'll have to see how it fleshes out, um, you know, if, if that is our matchup. And we'll know, you know, by the next time we take the year on the Kudzik line. Well, now let's switch over to the governor's race. And in the governor's race, um, the Democratic side is pretty clear. Josh uh, Shapiro, the sitting attorney general, running for governor. Um, he may have token opposition, but he's pretty much seen as the front runner um, to win the Democratic nomination. But on the Republican side, and their current governor, Tom Wolf, is term limited. Lou Barletta, a former congressman, is kind of the establishment choice. But then there's an upstart firebrand that's challenging Lou Barletta, and there was probably other candidates as well, but this gentleman's name is Doug Mastrino. And, and I may have said that last name wrong, but he seems um, he's out of the MAGA world. And this past week, he just got endorsed by Donald Trump, and he's been gaining in the polls, much like Kathy Barnett. And people see him as having a very, very difficult time in the general election if he were to become the nominee. Tim, give us your thoughts on, the, you know, I guess the Republican side of this race. And then, Catherine, if you want to do that after Go ahead. Well, he's uh, he's a state senator. Um, he is running with a double-digit lead at the moment. Uh, we we we've even uh, had uh, Jay Corman, who was the Senate president, uh, pro tempore uh, up there, and he dropped out of the race and endorsed Lou Barletta. There, they're, they're trying to rally around him, and he said at the time when he did it, the only way we will not be successful in the fall is if we nominate someone who can't possibly win. And, when, you know, everybody knew who he was talking about. Um, and, and you know, he he's one that has run it in the ground talking the big lie that the election was stolen for, from Trump and one of the first things he's going to do when he got elected is do this and that and the other about the election. And uh, and uh, it, Trump, Trump liked that. I believe it's in, in his endorsement. He said that he would reveal the deceit, corruption, and outright theft of the election, and he'll do something about it. He's a fighter, and, and now I have an obligation to be with him, and uh, the, 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 you know, the fear is that uh, Mastriano is a little bit too extreme to win a general election. Uh, um, the election, close elections, y'all know in Pennsylvania, you got to look at the, the suburbs uh, of Philadelphia and Pittsburgh where most of the swing voters are, and uh, the Republicans have to have those voters. Democrats might could slip by with them, but Republicans have to have them. 
and they may not be somebody that will warm up to Mastriano. Uh, uh, I know he's going to appeal to Trump voters, but uh, swing voters, that might be uh, – that might be tough there, so you may you may be looking at a, a guys at a at a gubernatorial and a U.S. Senate candidate that that that'll be worrying the Republican establishment up there. Yeah, Catherine, your thoughts on uh, Doug Mastriano and Lou Barletta for well, the Republican nomination for Pennsylvania governor? It sounds. I mean, I think Tim's got a good take on it, and uh, this is like. This is the um, this is the thing about primaries, right? You mm-hmm. if you run someone who appeals to the base but can't win a general, then you're you, you get you get you get what you asked for, and you end up not being able to win. So uh, it'll be as always interesting to watch. Yeah, it's kind of um, interesting um, how. Republicans, I think in many cases, they just – because our areas are so polarized, like if Republicans live in rural areas where there's nothing but Republicans, they think everybody's Republican, and probably the same thing in, in, in large cities. Everybody's a Democrat, and so they think, well, we can uh, you know, nominate whoever we want, and we'll test that theory this November. Well, right now I want to transition over um, to our guest, and we want to welcome in – uh, professor at the University of West Georgia, Daniel K. Williams. Do- Welcome, Dr. Williams. Well, hi. Good to be on your show. Excellent. Well, glad to have you. Uh, well, Dr. Williams, I, I tell what you do now, but I'm sure you've got a lot of background beyond that. Um, just start off by telling our listeners a little about your um, bio, particularly related to politics slash history. Yeah, Um I'm a professor of history at the University of West Georgia, and I study the intersection of religion and politics uh, in the United States. So I've written books such as uh, Politics of the Cross, most recently, uh, which is subtitled Christian Alternative Partisanship. But uh, before that, I wrote uh, books like God's Own Party, uh, The Making of the Christian Right, uh, Defenders of the Unborn, The Pro-Life Movement Before Roe v. Wade, uh, and the Election of the Evangelical uh, on the 1976 uh, presidential election. Yes. Well, um, I had actually seen your work before this past week, but this past week you um, had an article in The Atlantic, and we're going to get into that article later, but uh, it's not the first time you've written for The Atlantic and other uh, publications like it. How does a professor from Carrollton, Georgia, um, find out and get connected with publications like The Atlantic where they come to you when this is such a notable topic and have you write a piece for them? Well, I think once I published uh, a couple of my books uh, that were fairly well-reviewed, I started to get some contacts uh, in the media world. But uh, with the Atlantic piece, I think uh, I was fortunate enough to know um, someone who was also in the field, um, Mary Ziegler, who's written some books on on, uh, Roe v. Wade and the the politics of abortion more recently. And uh, she was able to put me in touch with some with the editor that she had worked with at the Atlantic. Um, and that, that's similar to, um, I guess, some of the other media opportunities that I've had. Either people have contacted me directly because uh, they've read one of my books or, or something else that I've published, uh, or else 
uh, I've worked closely with someone who might have known the editor and, and was able to, uh, to put in a good word for me. Yes. Well, I, I'm just glad that you're uh, getting out there and, and a fine publication like The Atlantic. And we are going to ask about that article in just a bit. I'm going to let Catherine and Tim and Catherine uh, take care of that. But I also wanted to ask you, since you're here in the state and you, you look at the intersection of politics and religion, I want to ask you about two different candidates running for statewide office this year who are both very different. Um, the first one is um, a candidate who ran for Senate last time. She's running for governor this time, and her uh, slogan is Jesus, Baby, and Guns. Uh, just about two weeks ago, she had this video where she's saying if she gets elected governor, the first thing she's going to do is sign an executive order to tear down these um, very – curious tablets in Elberton, Georgia that were put up in 1979. And so her campaign is, I mean, it's almost like a theology campaign or a theocracy more than it is in a conservative or liberal campaign. Um, what's your thoughts on how she's using religion and politics? Well, it fits into, I think, a, a broader pattern of, of the Christian rights frustration with the direction which the country is going. It's certainly drawing on a, um, the Christian rights version of, of civil religion, which was the same um, version, I think, uh, that we saw in Alabama a few years ago when, when Judge uh, Roy Moore um, brought in a Ten Commandments monument uh, to the, the courthouse. I, I think the, um, there's, there's been a longstanding uh, Anger in white evangelical, in some white evangelical circles, toward uh, the, sec the perceived secular direction of the country, and a, a belief that if uh, Christianity could be given a more prominent place in public life, that that would mean uh, a rollback of the sexual revolution and the feminist movement, and, and certainly uh, the abortion rights movement, uh, and would also lead to a, a more prominent place of both Christians and the symbols of Christianity in national politics. Um, I mean, in this particular case, I don't really see uh, her campaign getting anywhere. I don't think that, uh, that she's going to be uh, elected to, to statewide office, uh, but I do think that, the, that what she represents uh, it is a longstanding strand of conservative white evangelicalism, and in a less extreme form, uh, it has certainly resulted in, in Republican victories uh, in, in a number of cases. And, and over the course of the last 40 years, we've seen the Republican Party as a whole uh, shift toward embracing this more broadly. So while the, the particular tenets of this campaign may never be realized, uh, it's certainly true that, that the Republican Party as a whole, and particularly in the South, uh, has become more overtly Christian nationalist uh, over the last few decades. Yes, and this leads me into my other question um, about a candidate. Uh, the Republicans and white evangelicals seem to you know, think that they have the um, – you know, Christian religion cornered, and and it's almost like you know it's one. You have to be a, to be a good Christian. You have to be a good Republican. Be a good Republican. You have to be a good Christian. And yet, the highest 
serving elected official who is a trained minister and is, you know, speaks from the pulpit on before he certainly took office a weekly basis and still speaks from the pulpit is a Democrat, U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock. Um, talk about the other side about this, where there is a man of the cloth that is an elected official, but as a Democratic official. Right. Um, the African-American church tradition uh, has been deeply influential uh, in progressive politics uh, in the United States in the last few decades. And I think uh, a lot of white evangelicals don't really understand this or are not uh, particularly familiar with this branch of, of Christianity. But uh, the black church tradition, of course, was was integral to the civil rights movement. Uh, most famously, obviously, Martin Luther King Jr. was uh, a, a Baptist minister, but so were a lot of the other people uh, who were his associates uh, in the, uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, and after his death, uh, ministers like Jesse Jackson continued both the political and the religious tradition uh, of civil rights advocacy within African-American churches and, and beyond and, and brought that into uh, national politics. In the case of Jesse Jackson, uh, who ran for president twice, he brought it to the national stage. So Raphael Warnock is drawing on this tradition. And uh, surveys have shown that African-Americans as a whole uh, are more religious than any other demographic group. That is, they have higher church attendance rates, uh, higher rates of, of personal prayer, uh, higher rates of, of belief in God. Uh, and so they, it is a deeply Christian tradition, uh, but that tradition has interpreted Christianity and its political dimension very differently than that of, of a lot of uh, white evangelical churches, particularly those that, are, that lean toward the Christian right. Uh, instead of seeing Christianity primarily as about uh, restoring a, a Christian identity to the country or, or banning abortion, they have tended to see the tenets of Christianity uh, being worked out in how uh, the nation cares for the poor uh, and how uh, it advances the cause of, of equality, how uh, it cares how the country cares for uh, the marginalized. And so those strands of the black church tradition, I think, have, have deeply influenced Raphael Warnock, and it, it uh, has been closely associated with uh, the principles of the Democratic Party. So I think there's no real contradiction between uh, supporting the platform of, of the Democratic Party uh, and advancing the sort of, of uh, vision that... Uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church and a number of other African-American churches uh, have had for decades. Yes. Well, I, I want to um, be fair and get you over to the article that you just wrote this past week. So I'm going to pass it over to Tim and then Catherine for questions about that material. Tim? Uh, good evening, Dr. Williams. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, oh, you're welcome. With with Roe versus Wade possibly about to be overturned, uh, and, and with a victory in there, I, I, I guess what we've been looking at for a number of years is, is a laser beam type focus by, you know, Southern Christian evangelicals 
on that one major issue. And now the question becomes, what what is next for evangelicals? Will they expand their focus to other issues, or will there be something more? Yeah, well, I think um, two things are likely to happen. So first of all, I think they're likely to find that overturning Roe v. Wade doesn't really give them what they wanted as far as abortion is concerned. So it is true mm-hmm. that a number of southern states and Midwestern, a few states in the Midwest uh, and Great Plains areas uh, in the Mountain West may uh, ban abortion or at least uh, severely restrict it. Georgia's more likely, I would say, to, to severely restrict abortion than, than immediately ban it. But uh, what they're also likely to find is that a number of more liberal states in the country are likely to expand abortion availability and even to provide funding for women to travel to those states. So that would certainly include California. It would include New York. Uh, it would include a number of other states. So uh, the overall rate of abortion in the United States may not go down very substantially uh, during the next couple of years. In fact, there's likely to be uh, an abortion rights backlash uh, in states that are more politically progressive. So I think that's going to be a, a source of frustration for the pro-life movement and, and the Christian right. And so I suspect what they're going to try to do is to pass uh, a national ban on abortion, which will not work. They're not, I mean, they're not going to get the votes that they need uh, in Congress to be able to, to do that. And of course, as long as the Democrat is in the White House, it wouldn't matter anyway, it would be uh, vetoed. But uh, they're, they're likely to find there are limits to what they're able to do uh, solely through the Supreme Court. So that, that, I think, is going to lead to um, years of litigation and political campaigns to try to further restrict abortion and to close the loopholes. So immediately after Roe v. Wade is overturned, if it is overturned uh, next month, Georgia would presumably have a six-week ban uh, because of the Heartbeat uh, Act that was passed um, in 2019, but uh, no restrictions, at least so far, on uh, the use of abortion pills, uh, including those that are prescribed through telehealth. And so, uh, and of course, no restrictions uh, on women crossing state lines, uh, particularly into Florida, which will um, allow abortion up to 15 weeks. So I I think that the, while abortion will become more inconvenient uh, for many uh, Georgia women, uh, it's not really going to go away, uh, that there are going to be other legal means that are actually not substantially that much more expensive or more difficult than what uh, women have already had to undergo uh, in Georgia to, to get an abortion uh, that will still be available. So I think that we're likely to continue to see a lot of discussion of, of that particular issue of abortion. Um, but secondly, I think the, the Christian right will probably try to uh, revive some campaigns that were longstanding parts of the Christian right that maybe were put on hold. Uh, so for example, uh, same-sex marriage uh, and LGBTQ issues um, have long been a, a concern for Christian conservatives. And I think that's still the case. In the case of same-sex marriage, uh, the, the prevailing wisdom was that that they couldn't really relitigate uh, the decision in 2015, Obergefell versus Hodges, that declared same-sex marriage to be a constitutional right. Uh, but I suspect that will now be in question, uh, that, that there may be attempts to, to relitigate that, or if not uh, directly relitigate the issue of same-sex marriage, certainly try to provide uh, some, some legal protections on uh, 
states that, that attempt to, um, to limit transgender rights or to, to mm-hmm. uh, take conservative stances on LGBTQ issues in other ways. So I, I think we're likely to see um, not a, a substantial change uh, in the issues that the Christian right cares about, but perhaps um, a new energy behind some of these campaigns uh, that were perhaps temporarily put on hold. Mm-hmm. Now, you've made the very astute observation uh, about the fact that the states where abortion would be restricted the most also happen to be mostly states with the weakest health care policies in place. Yeah. And frankly, the Republican Party right now nationally is simply not a party that will support Medicaid expansion. They are not for welfare programs. They are not for WIC or food stamps. And right now, uh, with their political makeup, they're not going to be. Doesn't that produce something of a no-win scenario uh, for both the Republican Party and evangelicals in these states where they want to restrict abortion the most? I think so, yes. Um, 75% of women uh, who have abortions today are uh, low income, either just be- either below the poverty line or slightly above it. And uh, surveys have shown that, that economic factors are an important consideration for women who are uh, seeking an abortion, that, uh, that there's credible evidence that a number of women, particularly those um, who have one child already, uh, which is true of about 60% of, uh, of women getting abortions today, uh, would be likely to perhaps choose to, to, uh, to not terminate their pregnancy, to, to keep uh, the child if uh, they had the, uh, the economic assistance to uh, provide for um, their child after birth. And so that's, that's something that I think the pro-life movement needs to consider. And in fact, 50 years ago, it did consider that uh, quite often. And 50 years ago, the pro-life movement mm-hmm. was not generally associated with the Republican Party. It was much more associated with, uh, with somewhat politically liberal uh, Catholics in the, in the North who were, who were generally Democratic and who, who often supported some expansion of the social welfare state. But that's changed. Um, so I, I do expect what they will find um, is that the abortion rate does not drop as much as they would like, and that probably, in my view, one of the best ways to, to see uh, continued reductions in, in the abortion rate would not be to focus um, solely on, on legal restrictions on abortion, but to ask the question, well, uh, is there something that could be done uh, economically or, or through uh, the expansion of, of health care options that would perhaps uh, provide positive alternatives uh, for women who, who perhaps are not necessarily thrilled about having to um, to, to seek a pregnancy termination. Um, so in Georgia, for example, between 2014 and 2017, there was actually an increase uh, in the abortion rate in the state, uh, even as the national abortion rate was going down. And that's certainly not because abortion was becoming more uh, widely available or, or, that, or that the legal restrictions um, in Georgia were becoming uh, any less significant than they had before. Uh, and so e- even a, a conservative state, uh, mostly conservative state, with, with abortion policies that uh, you know, are somewhat more restrictive as they were at the time than, than much of the rest of the country, can still see increases in, in the abortion rate uh, 
if other factors are not addressed. And, and so I think that may well be the case that over the next couple of years, we're going to see this continued push uh, by many social conservatives on the right to, to try to address the abortion question solely through, uh, through abortion bans or through restrictive legislation. And mm-hmm. we may find in five years or so, as we're revisiting the topic, that it did not uh, work quite as well as what they might have hoped. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you one more question, and then I'm going to pass it over to Catherine, who's going to be asking you some more questions about the abortion issue. But uh, it's fair to say, politically speaking, that evangelicals have been on offense for a long time. They've been in attack mode for many years. And, and what I was wondering, do you think they're constructed in such a way that they could play defense against that inevitable blowback that you mentioned a few minutes ago that's probably going to be coming their way? Well, uh, I think that they're going to find themselves geographically marginalized in terms of their political influence. So uh, conservative evangelicals exist in every state in the nation. Uh, Strong Mm -hmm. Republican, partisan conservative evangelicals exist in every state of the nation. But as we both know, there are many states where their political influence uh, is negligible. Uh, They're not likely to take over the government of Massachusetts anytime soon. Uh, (laughs) And so I think what we're likely to see is a continued polarization that's based on region. So uh, from, say, South Carolina through the Deep South um, and across to Arkansas and, and up to Missouri, there will be this continued uh, Bible Belt stronghold uh, in which uh, social conservatives, white evangelicals, either are the dominant influence in the state government or have uh, legitimate prospects of, of achieving that dominance. Uh, and then outside of that belt, we're likely to find that, that their influence quickly drops off. So we're probably going to see um, a, a Republican divergence between the Bible Belt states where abortion is banned completely or severely restricted uh, and some other states where uh, white evangelical influence is not quite so strong in the Republican Party and maybe um, somewhat more moderate uh, abortion policies are, are tried, such as in Kansas, I would say, um, probably Florida, which will probably stick with its 15-week ban and not try to, um, to ban abortion altogether. Um, and then uh, a handful of, of states that have Republican governors uh, in, in the Northeast in particular, where the Republican governors uh, are strongly supportive of, of continued abortion rights because they know the state supports that and, and they really – would like to distance themselves entirely uh, from that, that movement um, to either restrict LGBTQ rights or to, to restrict abortion rights. And so um, I do think that, that while white evangelicals are, are likely to continue uh, to exercise a controlling influence in the Republican Party, uh, this, this latest push and this continued push that we're likely to see for um, uh, abortion prohibitions uh, is, is likely to, to split the Republican coalition to a certain extent outside uh, of 
the Deep South and a handful of other states where uh, white evangelicals have a predominant influence. So I would, right. I would see that being a potential backlash uh, nationally in the Republican oh. Party. All right. I thank you for that, sir. And with that, I'm going to pass it over to Catherine for some more questions. Catherine? Catherine, are you with us? I'm sorry. I was on mute. Yeah, not sure what happened with Catherine. It's like an ongoing thing, right? It's like, oh, I forgot to get off mute. Anyway, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. We really appreciate it. It's a fascinating conversation. Um, I have a couple of questions, comments. I think at the the last time I saw the data or numbers, about 70% of the country uh, believes that abortion should remain legal. Some people think there should be some restrictions on it. Some people there should think it should be basically on demand. But about 70% think it should be legal in some fashion. So how is it that um, these evangelicals have have captured uh, this issue and managed to, you know, how, how does this, how is this possible <laughs> that we have such yeah. strong support for abortion, for access to legal abortion, but here we are, lo- it looks like it's going to be, I mean, it's not going to be outlawed, but it's going to be greatly limited to a large portion of the country. Yeah. Well, the states that are likely to uh, pass abortion restrictions will will pass abortion restrictions that, for the most part, reflect the the political opinions and demographics of that state. So, while it is true that a majority of Americans, as you correctly pointed out, uh, would like to see uh, abortion remain legal, that's not true in every state. Uh, so, in oh, the, the, state that, the state that is that has the strongest opinions against abortion, um, Louisiana has uh, just barely over a third of, of the, uh, the adult citizens of that state uh, asking for abortion to remain legal, according to um, the latest poll that was done on the issue, which is a few years old, I think comes from maybe 2017. Um, so, but I, if opinion in Louisiana is still roughly what it was, a few years ago, then I would expect that an abortion ban in Louisiana, which is actually set to take place automatically, um, that, that is without even a, a gubernatorial signature required a trigger law that would just uh, shut down abortion in the state as soon as Roe v. Wade is issued. I think that, uh, you know, that, that would not be particularly uh, controversial or at least not controversial enough uh, to result in a, a political backlash against the, the state government in power. Um, I, I think states that take a that are currently under Republican control that are taking a more moderate position on abortion, at least comparatively moderate, uh, you know, when when uh, looked at alongside, say, Louisiana's, uh, like Florida, I think again we're we're likely not to see a, a political backlash. So Florida has a, in place now a 15-week ban. Um, that's probably going to be viewed in our current political context as as somewhat of a moderate position that would appeal to a majority of plurality of the state's voters, that is um, public opinion polls while showing that Americans support access to legal abortion, also 
show that a lot of Americans are more uncomfortable uh, with late second trimester abortions uh, and and uh, really any abortions later uh, in pregnancy. And so so that particular approach that I, I'm guessing a number of conservative states that are where abortion is perhaps more widely accepted than it would be in Louisiana um, may well adopt. And conversely, half the states in the country, um, at least 24 um, by the counts that I've seen, uh, are likely to uh, allow abortion to remain just as legal as it is today. And in fact, some are likely to expand availability, um, expand the number of clinics, expand um, state funding for abortion, um, certainly California and New York are in that category. So, so I think in every state we're likely to see politicians um, act in, a, in accordance with the particular majority values of that state on abortion. And so what's going to, to be evident, uh, it already is evident, it will become increasingly evident over the next few months, is just how regionally um, divided the country is. And so those people who, whose political opinions uh, are not in line with the majority opinions in, in their state are going to feel um, increasingly isolated, increasingly disfranchised. People who are supportive of abortion rights in Louisiana, for example, are going to, to feel increasingly out of step uh, with the, the state's government and the rest of the state. Um, and conversely, uh, pro-life organizations in, say, New York, who might have thought uh, that the end of Roe would, would be a victory, will actually find that their state becomes uh, – much more of an abortion provider um, after uh, the end of Roe uh, than it was uh, before. Okay. Now, my next question is, uh, you know, you, we talked about, uh, you mentioned that, uh, I mean, I, I have, I'm not a, a student of the Bible, but I do know uh, that, you know, care for the poor um, care for the sick, care, you know, uh, that those were principles of, um, of Jesus and that um, how, how do evangelicals balance those ideas and those values that, I mean, as a child, I mean, I think we all learn, maybe I'm, maybe I lived in, live in a bubble, which is very possible. How do they balance not, supporting, like, expansion of Medicaid, uh, support for the poor, while still holding their evangelical Christian views. Right, yeah, and a lot of people have wondered that. Uh, and to be fair, there are uh, – there, there is a minority among white evangelicals that would, would strongly support uh, social welfare programs and, and that would really foreground concern for the poor – uh, oh yeah, I don't. I don't mean to. Policies. I don't mean to but, frame but, everybody right, the same way. But, right, exactly. but it seems no, to be I, a I theme. Just to, yeah, just to. So, if we take those, you know, twenty twenty five percent of of white evangelicals off out of the equation and look at the other seventy five to eighty percent that are are solid Republicans, and the question is, well, how do they uh, interpret the Bible on these points? And I think the answer is that if you look at, at churches and individuals, they're often strongly supportive of. Uh, care for the poor. So studies have been, sh- have been conducted that show that the, um, the highest rates of charitable giving uh, occur in the Bible Belt states. Um, Mississippi, for example, has an extremely high rate of 
uh, of private charitable giving as a percentage of, of individual income. And certainly most churches uh, have um, a, a tradition of, of helping the poor, both in their own midst and outside of the church, that, that church ministries are um, to care for the poor are very common. So the typical white evangelical who's active in church may well go on short-term missions uh, to, to say, uh, impoverished places in Appalachia, not to mention in Latin America and elsewhere, to build houses. They may be um, active in private charitable organizations as, as well, uh, helping out with, at a local uh, soup kitchen. Um, those things are very common. But what they also deeply believe, uh, whether correctly or not, uh, is that government social welfare programs hurt the poor. That's a near universal belief. Um, that, that it destroys families, that it, it destroys initiative, uh, the government should not be involved in this business. And there's a, a longstanding deep suspicion of the federal government. And I think what has happened is that while mainline and, and liberal Protestants and certainly Catholics um, have tended to, on average, uh, be quite comfortable with the idea of an expanded uh, state, and an expanded social welfare state, uh, and so your average uh, Episcopal Church or United Church of Christ or Catholic Church, for that matter, would would see a lot of value in uh, a in strong government social policies. In the South in general, and in Appalachia in particular, there's a there's been a longstanding suspicion uh, of the federal government that goes back uh, nearly two centuries uh, since before the Civil War, and. That suspicion, I believe, has, has been imported into the predominant uh, white Protestant tradition in the South, uh, Southern white evangelicalism. And it has become so deeply ingrained that, that the Bible is read through the lens of that particular uh, political tradition of a suspicion of, of the federal government. And so when people will read some of the, the passages that you've, you've mentioned and, and by one count, there are about 2,000 verses in the Bible that say something about <laughs> caring for the poor. Uh, when they read those, uh, they will see it as an individual mandate or a church mandate, but not uh, a political mandate. And that differentiates them uh, from liberal Protestants and many Catholics. Okay. That's, that makes sense, actually. I, I mean, I don't agree with it, but I, I get it. Well, thank you very much. I see our time is – we're way over. So let me – Pass it back to David for final quest, final questions. Thanks so much. Hey, right, well, we've got a yeah, good guest. We don't mind uh, going over. We've got extra time on the live show and the podcast. Um, Dr. Williams, we do thank you so much for coming on the show. And um, before you leave us and our listeners, let our listeners know where they can, um, you know, read your work if, if you are published in publications or on social media or where they can buy your books you spoke of. Sure. Uh, so I regularly blog uh, at a, a Pathios channel called The Anxious Bench, and so you can just look up uh, my name. You can Daniel K. Williams uh, is, is the name I usually publish under, uh, and so you can you can look uh, for my work at uh, the current blog uh, and at the Anxious Bench blog on Pathios. Um, I also have write widely for popular publications, uh, including as as you said uh, uh, just a few days ago for The Atlantic. Uh, and uh, some of my books uh, include God's Own Party, The Making of the Christian Right, uh, Politics of the Cross, uh, Christian Alternative to Partisanship, 
uh, and Descendants of the Unborn, uh, the pro-life movement before uh, Roe v. Wade. And all of those books uh, are available on, on Amazon. Uh, you can also find references to them on my uh, homepage at the University of West Georgia, where I teach. Yes, sir. Well, thank you for coming on the show so much tonight. Well, thanks for inviting me. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you, doctor. Thanks. Thank you. Yes, that was Dr. Daniel K. Williams of University of West Georgia. Um, you know, he, he really does publish a lot, so uh, look up his blogs as well. Um, read the piece in the Atlantic, and there's other pieces in the Atlantic as well, and then his books. Um, well, um, it, it is uh, past 8 o'clock, and so there's always more to talk about, but there's always future Kudzu Vine. So for tonight, it's been the Kudzu Vine. Not everybody. Good night, Good night guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and...